Welcome back, everyone, to the Enneagram Journey and part two of Susanna Jamie's conversation. I'm going to go ahead and apologize that this episode has a little bit too much of me in it, but the conversation and Jamie's book, just uh, her book, If You Only Knew, had a little too much meat on it for me to not help myself. A quick reminder that this upcoming Monday and Tuesday, November 19th and 20th, Suzanne is teaching the Enneagram and how we move in stress and security. Get your friends together, join online from anywhere, use the hashtag Enneagram Live to tweet questions on Twitter, tweet questions and to interact with everyone else, and hopefully, uh, you know, we'll see you then. Enjoy the show, and we hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Y'all keep going. Okay. A theme throughout the first three quarters, and that y'all have talked about it some, is shame. Mm-hmm. That gets brought up so much at Enneagram workshops, and people want to talk about it, and people struggle with it. And when I share my story, uh, people ask, oh, about the shame, and I, I never have an answer. And so then I was thinking, I was like, I don't, why do I relate with so much except for the shame, and what's the deal? So this is where I'm asking y'all a question, but I think... It's finally hit me a little bit. You talk about how sevens have no connection to the uh, feeling tribe. Feeling tribe. So I don't. I don't have a wing. I don't go there in stress. I don't go there in security. And I've always known that. And I've been. And I, I'm jealous sometimes of people who are in touch with other people's feelings or more in touch with their own. But that same triad is the shame triad. And so I have no. I'm out of touch with shame. Like I, there's no space in my life or energy that I get that connects with the anagram and shame. I'm sure there's someone who's called a seven shameless and you're right. <laughs> and it's a bummer because there are times that, especially when I'm beating myself up, I'm like, I, you know, yes, you're embarrassed about your actions, but it's all so heady. My thing with all my past uh, bad choices, past sins, past everything is it's in the past and we're going to move on and here are the consequences and but never any shame around it. And I think that's caused a lot of disconnect from the people that I've hurt, if that makes sense. I've never connected the seven and shame piece till you did. What I want to add to that maybe is that I think um, feelings, all of them, are a rudder. And I think being able to read other people's feelings are kind of a rudder. It's kind of how you make your way. And so three sevens and eights, when they're not dialed into other people's feelings, then they are just kind of on on their own. Mm -hmm. And their orientation of time is the future. So Joel, you said, and that's the past, and the past is the past. But the past is ever-present for fours, fives, and nines, right? So if you put a four, whose orientation of time is the past, using what Joel just taught us, and they also are in the shame triad, then they carry it all the time. It's always with them. Always with them. Always, always, always. So how does your seven wing serve you, girly? Well, I guess it serves me well because I'm letting go of that shame. There you go. <laughs> um, I think even when you were talking, I was like, I think we're, if I look at where did my shame really come from, I think 
I honestly think I felt shame because of what people might think of me. Mm -hmm. I mean, the title of my book is If You Only Knew, Mm -hmm. and because I lived that, if they knew about this, what would their reaction be to me? What would they think about me? Mm -hmm. Where I really envy someone who can can just say, I don't care. I'll tell you everything. I don't care what you think about me. Mm -hmm. I really care deeply what you think about me. So I think maybe the seven served me well when I got to a point where I said, I I can say all this and what you think about me is what you think. I'm not going to take it on. That took some maturity and some growth for me as a six to be able to say, I'm okay. All right, I'm going to jump into y'all's thing just because I can't keep myself from doing it. So here's what I used to do. I used to introduce myself this way. Hi, I'm Suzanne. I'm adopted. My mother did not want me. I did pretty good in life till I was sexually abused as a 16-year-old when I was a foreign exchange student. Uh, Then I uh, went to school, gained a lot of weight, dated the wrong people, then I uh, married the wrong man, and then I got a divorce, and then I married a man who was a priest before he married me, and Catholic Church really kind of thinks that was my fault, even though it wasn't. Everybody knows it was. Blah, 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 blah. I just keep going on and on and on because I want everybody to know everything right up front, so if they're going to leave, they'll go ahead and go. You don't have to. There's nothing else. There's no waiting. It's like, this. here it is. Are you staying or going? Mm-hmm. Well, one day Joe said, maybe they just go ahead and go because they don't know what to say back. <laughs> it's just too much. It's, it's like, a fire hose. What, exactly. Yeah. It's like. <laughs> Big gulps, huh? Yeah. Well, see you later. <laughs> but is it also like, are you, because I have a friend who is, they are kind of the same way. They'll introduce themselves and immediately with the stranger, they've told not their whole life story, but the worst parts of oh, their absolutely. story. And I always am like, why are we still doing that? Mm-hmm. Like to me also, most of my book was 20 years ago. So there is, I'm like, listen, I don't need to lead with that because I've already walked through that, you guys. There's stuff in my life right now I'm not putting in a book because I'm still walking through it. Well, and I don't need to lead with I'm adopted because my mother didn't want me because that's 58 years ago. Right. And yet, it's it somehow is... uh feels protective mm-hmm. it's like you don't wait for the shoe to drop because you've just you drop it already yeah you've just thrown all the shoes at somebody yeah. and they sometimes leave <laughs> yeah so in your book when you talked about you're dating Aaron mm-hmm. and you're deciding you're going to share you're going to share the past with Aaron it, it's time and then so there were a couple the thing that I related with the most there was after you shared it with them he's like okay and you're like Someone shares that with me. I've got questions. Lots of questions. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, yes. Uh-huh. Yes to the question. I think that's where the head part that yeah. we do share comes in. But in your apprehension with sharing him, sharing with him, I thought that's where we differed a lot was that, again, you were worried, what's he going to think about me? And my thing, so when I shared all my past with Whitney, it was, is this going to end? Like, I was, is this going to end now? Not... What does she think about me? But I love what we're doing here. Is this over? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny too, because when Aaron and I started dating, like on our, one of our first dates, um, I said to him, I have a lot of things I need to tell you. And in fact, I mean, I talked about this in the book. I had been pregnant 
like four months before I started dating him. Yeah. He's a pastor, a student pastor. He's a pastor at a church. And I said, I have a lot of things I need to share with you, but I'm just not ready. Had someone said that to me, I, we're not leaving until we get this on the table. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not waiting. I have questions. What's happening? And he just said, okay. And then we dated for six months before I told him. That, that's so weird to me. I, that would have never happened had the tables been turned. My first wife was a, is a six, and we started dating, and I just alluded to something. She didn't say, hey, we need to talk about that right now. She went ahead and went home and did background search and the whole pulled all that stuff. Yeah, she, <laughs> there was no waiting. Can I, tell, can I tell you a story real yeah. quick about sure. this is how I feel? So this was probably seven years ago. No, longer than that. Nine years ago, um, I found one of Aaron's journals. It sounds like I'm a shady wife, but literally, I promise you, it just was there. And listen, I, I, if, if it's there in my house, <laughs> it's I your job to read it. <laughs> I found awful. Anyhow, I read it, and he talked about something that was um, like a, a cigarette that was causing cancer in him. And I thought to myself, I've been married to this man at this point. 12 years he smokes what and I went our whole marriage is a lie everything's a lie I texted my girlfriend and I said I need you to pray because my marriage (laughs) this is so dumb I was like my marriage is a lie (laughs) y'all I went through his suitcases I thought y'all this is cigarettes smelling were you smelling oh I was looking in drawers I was everything he gets yeah I mean I am investigating because I feel like my husband's been lying to me for 12 years and he's he's a smoker which if you're a smoker it's fine whatever he gets home I sit him down I said I read your journal and I need to ask you some questions and he was like (laughs) what are you talking about? And I was like, I opened it up and I said, right here, is our whole marriage a lie? Have you been smoking (laughs) cigarettes for 12 years? (laughs) And he's like, Jamie, it's like, I'm just making like a a connection. Like there's a, it's a metaphor of a sin that's causing a cancer in my soul. And I was, he's like, I, I'm a songwriter. I'm an artist. This, this is not, I don't smoke cigarettes. This is the thorn in Paul's side. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to, my girlfriend texts me. She's like, are you okay? I've been praying all day. And I'm like, yeah, everything's fine. We're good. <laughs> but it was that I went all the way. Yep. My whole marriage is dissolving in front of me because I think my husband's been lying to me that he smokes cigarettes. It's the chaining that this is to do. It's of, absolutely. He lied about what everything. Everything's a lie. Everything. He a lie. probably has another marriage in Oregon with a family. <laughs> I'm serious. Very good. It, I mean, <laughs> it is. It is so crazy that I still have to. I finally. I think. I think I can confidently say. I really think I can say that I. If it happens, it happens, and I couldn't have said this a couple of years ago. I think I really do trust my husband. I do. I do trust him because he's never given me a reason not to. But I have infidelity in my family. Mm-hmm. And so I always think he's going to leave me. Mm-hmm. I always think he's going to have an affair. And I, I was telling our girlfriend the other day is I, I'm, I'm not patting myself on the back, but I think I'm a really good wife. Um, but for probably the first eight, ten years of our marriage, mm-hmm. I was a good wife, so he would not see anything better. He mm-hmm. would not think that there's a better option. He would think, I have a really good wife. Why would I leave her? Now, I still think I'm a good wife, mm-hmm. but it's because I love God and I love my husband. Mm-hmm. A lot of years, I spent a lot of energy 
not question, not, not asking questions. I'm going to be the best. So you won't leave me. So these are two of my favorite stories. One of them is a teaching story and one of them is just fun. My, um, mom and dad were older when they adopted me and I got to travel some with them and they, um, we were on the beach somewhere, um, when I was young and my dad was reading a book and every time a really beautiful woman would walk by, my mother would punch my dad and say, honey, don't miss this. This one, you need to see this woman. She's beautiful. Isn't that a beautiful bathing suit? And this gorgeous 30 years younger than my mother woman would walk by. And my dad would watch her walk, and then he'd go back to reading. And then it happened a couple more times, and I said to my mom, what are you doing? Like, why would you point those women out to him? And she said, oh, honey, that way I never have to think he would have noticed if I hadn't. Oh, that was her thinking. Yeah, it's like, and she was a five. Uh-huh. And she thought that all through, and she thought, I'm going to point these women out to him, and then. I don't have to wonder no, if he saw it. No, it's like, <laughs> What a gift She's like, I'm, I'm going to get ahead yeah, of the game. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. So um, this one's not that much fun. The last one wasn't very much fun. That, that, what a tense relationship. <laughs> I, I think it's just a fun, that. fun story. I think it's fun that she did that. I think it's fun that he didn't care. care. Yeah, no, I love it all. Okay. Joe's pretty great, like really handsome and really great. And we've never been appointed to a church or anywhere where somebody didn't flirt with him. Like, it's just, it's part of the thing, right? Women have a really nice thing for men on stages. Yeah, they do. Yep. Yeah, they do. And if they can sing, Joe mm. has a beautiful voice. Then it's a whole added layer. Yep. Yep. If you put it on an acoustic guitar, exactly. I mean, then it's just a whole new level. Yeah, that's Joe Stabile right there. <laughs> Joe and Aaron yeah, I know. Yeah, we ought to do that. I know. We ought to do that. So um, there was a woman in one of our churches who kind of had a crush on Joe. And um, I started to his office one Sunday after Sunday school on my way to church. And as I approached the office, um, this woman was standing in the doorway. And she uh, held up her hand to me and said, we're not quite through. Mm -hmm. And so... I, I don't know how Joe got to the door that fast, but he immediately appeared in the door and said, yes, we are. And a few weeks later, uh, same scenario, except when she saw me come and she closed the door. Oh, no. And again, I don't know how Joe got there so fast, but it opened pretty quick. Mm -hmm. So for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because I was traveling a lot. I don't know. I don't know why. She was not particularly a, a woman that I would feel like I needed to be jealous of. So... And jealousy is not my thing. Like, I got my stuff, but that's kind of yeah. not one of them. So uh, I was just mad. So I started rah rah about her to Joe, and then I just couldn't leave it alone. Like, I, anytime he did anything, I brought that up. Right. And I just talked about it, talked about it, and rah rah about it, and rah rah until he said, you know, I, I think you might should go talk to Bob about that. This is really way bigger than it should be. Yeah. You think it's big. You wait. I'll go talk to Bob, and then he's going to want to see you, and then we'll, you'll know how big this is. So uh, I went and started unpackaging all of this with more than I said to you in terms of description and things. And Bob let me talk for about maybe 30 minutes, and then he kind of moved up on the edge of his chair, and he said, are you done? And I said, well, um, I, maybe. Why? And he said... Well, I'm, I don't want to talk about her anymore. But I'd like to talk about why you 
are hanging your anxiety on this poor woman's bones. Mm-hmm. So that story works for me, but that story really works for sixes mm-hmm. because once your anxiety is all up, you have to hang it somewhere. Are you aware of that? And do you know where you hang yours? I think I'm more aware of it than I have been in the past, which is why I feel healthier than I have been is because for many years, I didn't know that's what I was doing and I wouldn't have known to see it. I would have just thought everyone does this and it's okay. But I think, yes, I see it. And I see it do come out with Aaron sometimes, like in the story that you just said, he's a public figure, those type of things. And I don't lend myself to jealousy either. I just would be not afraid. I wouldn't be jealous. I would just be worried that yeah. he would leave. Yeah. Or that he would think she was prettier than right. me. You know? Right. Um, in fact, I just said to Aaron last night, I said, you know, I know you've had a lot of big things recently. They had this big worship event and I couldn't go. I couldn't be there. And I said, I still sometimes feel that you'll get affirmed there. Yep. Your wife's at home with the kids. Yep. I was traveling the next morning. That's why I couldn't go. Yep. So my job kept me from encouraging you and cheering you on. And I said, I still sometimes worry that some other girl is going to affirm you more. And so I guess I, I relate to that story. Yeah. It, it, she may not have a face. Yeah. But that would be my fear. Yeah. Aaron's a big uh, words of affirmation guy. Mm-hmm. And I have to remind myself to tell him words yeah. of affirmation. Yeah. And so I fear that I'll get busy or I'll travel a lot mm-hmm. or we have four kids. I mean, you know, it's life. And is he getting that from another cute girl? Yeah. Yeah. She couldn't be as cute as you are. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, one of the best things that's happened in the world in a long time is the book, If You Only Knew. You're by kind. Jamie Ivy. You're kind. Um, I have um, a lot to say about it, but Joel does too. So I'm going to back up, but I'm, I'm for sure going to chime in. I just, before I do back up, I want you to hear me say, that I have the exact same appreciation you do for authenticity and stories, and that I think uh, your book can help every person to understand the value of honest storytelling. Mm, Thank you. And I hope that everybody who reads the book will pick up on all the places where you say, does that ring true to you? Does that sound like something you do? Like you really did a good job of every time, it seemed to me like when you were writing, every time you thought, they're going to think this is just me. I'm going to throw in and <laughs> you how do you right? do that, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So thank yeah. you so much for your kind words. Yeah, I yeah, really yeah. appreciate I, it's, it. It's a good one. Thank you. Am I wrong to say most of your audience is female? You would not be wrong to say that. Okay. But I will say this. When I was writing my book, Aaron said to me a thousand times, quit saying her. Write it for everybody. So although my audience is mainly women, I'm a woman, most of my stories would probably be more relatable to women. It's super exciting that you read it and enjoyed it because I think there's something in there for everybody. Oh, man, absolutely. First of all, from the Anagram perspective, I love the inclusivity of sixes. And my favorite part of that is, uh, and for people who want to get out their book, you know, on page 92 and 93, where you talk about that and it was so cool because you talked about insiders and outsiders and how and 
I wouldn't say challenging the church, but how that's such a, a struggle kind of in the church. Can I look too at what mm-hmm. I said? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that uh, crazy? You, yeah. t- you were talking about a parable. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry, a parable. Uh, Jesus and the ladies is uh, Jesus and his ladies. I love that. That's what I told my publisher. I'm going to I'm going to name my next book Jesus and his ladies. Yes. Uh, you go for it. I like it a we'll lot. We'll see if it goes, but So a lot of conspiracy theorists might buy that. <laughs> but uh, I just want to know if you could kind of elaborate on that a little bit more just because Mom, you talked about the devil's advocate being such yeah. a gift that sixes have that the rest of us don't have and uh, we talked about it in our small group this past week. Uh, we went through is week four. Uh, if anybody's doing the uh, session four of what kind of what we bring to the table, and then we kind of shower each other with praise about their number and the things that they do that the rest of us don't. And I loved how uh, this one lady was like, "I my coworker is a six, and when she uh, is there, we all eat together." And then on the random days that she's not there, we don't we don't eat together. We all go in our office or some room. But every day that she's there at work, everyone eats together, and she makes sure that happens. And that's such a such a sixth thing, and it's such a cool thing. And I love the story and the angle that you put on it. So if you could kind of talk about that for a second, yeah, I, I like to talk about um, the way that Jesus reacted to women um, as a woman. It really feels special to me, um, but also in our culture in our day and age, I think there's a big just ideas and thoughts about women and so that inclusion bringing everybody in is kind of me wanting to say hey hey, wherever you're coming from whatever you're bringing to the table Jesus is like hey come on in like that's what he did is like everyone come in you're all welcome here and I think for me a lot of writing this book was me wanting to go our stories matter bring your story to the table let's lay it all out there Let's look at it, and then at the end of it, we're going to see the grace of God on top of it, and we're going to see the work that he's doing in us in spite of our choices, in spite of our bad decisions. And so I want women to feel that, and men, you too, I'm going to quit saying that, see? I want people to see that in my story because I've seen that in the way that Jesus reacts to people. And so then there's witness value to your connection to everything you just said, that you share in the book about the table in your backyard. Mm-hmm. I, I love all of the description of that. I love that the chairs don't mm-hmm. match and they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. And I love all the things that have happened there. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea that when you gather people around that table, because of all that has happened there, mm-hmm. you know that something's going to happen. Yeah. Aaron and I, we love gathering people in our home. We feel as though... Aaron loves to cook. We love having people over. We really do see that around a meal, life gets shared. Mm -hmm. Um, People are more comfortable. They just barriers come down, give them a good food, good drink, and everything just, everything works out well. But we have seen, when I talk about this table in our backyard, the reality of, and I think it takes Aaron and I also creating a safe place for someone to feel comfortable enough to share their stories at the table and know that we're going to receive them and accept them and we're not going to shame them or make them feel bad for what they bring. And so it has become this little place in our backyard uh, where life can be talked about and it, we can be open with each other and confident that we're still going to be there when, at the end of the story. 
There's a, a part of uh, Eucharist, the Eucharist in the Catholic Church where there is a line where uh, you say, everybody says, and it's right before you go up to receive communion, uh, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. And I thought of that immediately when you talked about what's happening at your table. It's like that's what can happen at a table. I have a whole thing about the Catholic table being a closed table, but we don't need to go there today. Right, we'll not go there. But I, I, I do think that a good, a good thing to think about is only say the word and I'm healed. It's not like I have to jump through a bunch of hoops and mm-hmm. I have to do a bunch of stuff. And your book is a lot about healing. Yeah. Yeah. It is. And I feel like I went on such a journey. I mean, it was just growing up in the church feeling as though my decisions and consequences in life that it somehow disqualified me from doing ministry. It disqualified me from being married to a pastor. It disqualified me from having a voice. And I just believed that for way too long. Even The funny thing is, even though no one ever really said that to me, mm-hmm. I have no memory of anyone ever telling me that. But I had these internal lies that I believed to be true. And so for me, if it's me, it's happening to, ever, to other people. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to invite people onto my story so that you could see your story through it. And mm-hmm. that's what I think has been really interesting and cool is the reactions that I've had is people saying, I don't have your exact story, but I saw myself in your story. And th- that brought me hope. And so that is a gracious comment that I am really happy about. Well, seeing my story started on uh, page X, I don't even think it has a page number, but is it the dedication page? Is that I'm not an author like uh-huh. you are, but uh, you said to Aaron, uh, thank you for constantly loving me and pursuing me. And so, so right there, and I'm so in the room right now for people that aren't here are a one, a two, and a six. Uh, my wife, Whitney, one, two, my mom, and then you, Jamie, six. And when Whitney and I, were we, sorry to put you on the spot, were we engaged when you said oh, that? Yes, we were. We were engaged. Okay. See, I, she doesn't even know what I'm talking about yet. She does now. <laughs> so I read that, and we were sitting there one day, and we were having a, I don't know if it was a rough day or week or whatever it was, and she looked at me, and she said those words. She's like, you have got to keep pursuing me. And at the time, I didn't, we're getting married. We were definitely engaged, yes. I was like, <laughs> we're getting married. I don't understand what's happening here. I, think, I don't think we were living together quite yet. And that really stood out for me as just another difference. And I loved that. And so not only from a personal relationship standpoint of hearing that again from someone else, and that sounds so bad, like it doesn't give more validation to what Whitney said, but hearing it from another person, I was like, all right, that is people like being chased yeah. and, and being pursued. And so I'll, the three of you can talk about that for a second for, for all of us who don't understand that. Well, I think it's weird that you don't understand that. What do you mean? Like, <laughs> what? Um, and, you know, I've never thought about me saying that or me feeling that through the lens of an Enneagram knowledge. But now that I do, it makes perfect sense because I need to be reminded that Aaron is still for me, that he is still wants me, that he still needs me. Um, because as much as I know that what creeps in is that fear that it's gone. And so I know in my head and I really believe it's not gone, but it really is nice to hear it. 
And I enjoy that. So obviously I've got stuff going with abandonment. You know, I was adopted and my first marriage was not a healthy one and, 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 and a real turning point for Joe and me, um, probably the first three or four, maybe five years we were married. I kept thinking he was going to leave. You talk a lot about thinking Aaron's going to leave. And I, I kept thinking Joe was going to leave, but I process everything verbally. So I kept saying to Joe, you're going to leave. So since you're going to leave, why don't you go ahead and go? I know you're going to leave, so why don't you just go ahead and go? Before the shoe drops, let's just call yeah, it what it yeah, is. Yeah, and you're going to go. So are you going now? Are you going to wait a year? When are you going? And he pretty patiently put up with all of that until one day, uh, just I was doing that scared thing, and he said, so here's what I have to say. I love you with all my heart. I love our life. I love our family and our children. I show up. Every day, I do the very best I know how to do for you and them and us. So it looks to me like all the work is on your side of the fence. And I think that's a real important Enneagram teaching because once we learn about other people's Enneagram numbers, we start to point out what we know about their number and what they need to do. Did you tell that story in The Path Between Us? Maybe. I think that I read that and went, this is really she just she just nailed me yeah this is me and we've had that Aaron and I've had that same conversation where he just goes you either have to trust me or I can't do anything else to prove my love for yeah. you yeah like I'm out of options yeah just that same kind of conversation and yeah so I think in the book what I my takeaway is that Aaron could have seen all of this as it Ultimately, it's not that you don't trust me. It's that you don't trust you. Mm. Would you say that that you don't trust that you're worthy? You don't trust that you're 100% valuable. You don't. Yeah, that's. And sometimes I don't trust the system even. Like, I saw this breakdown before. Yeah. Surely it can't work out for me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Just mother-in-law to daughter-in-law. I love so much that you said, you have to come get me. <laughs> well, and, and just to give my side of this, and I don't know if this is just me or if it's Andy Graham or what, I know that Whitney loves me. So in those times, I'm like, I don't, I don't need to be pursued. We're, we're good. You know, sometimes I even like arm's length. <laughs> like, we're, we have this life together, and I like a little bit more pursue and distance which is why I think the the knowledge about this is so helpful because it when you can say that out loud then she can go okay I, I can know when this is happening and I can realize what he's doing because of this mm-hmm. or she can even it once you've said that to her or I mean once she said that to you she now has the permission to say it again like hey remember yeah, I need this yeah I'm, I'm learning something because what I say is I say to Joe I'm not going to keep chasing you. Like, I might have said that this week. Even. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think, like I said, I, to bring that one to conclusion, I just thought it was so cool that I haven't even gotten to the book yet. And I'm like, oh, man, I, I probably need to read the rest of this book. Oh. Uh, another thing that I, so I'm in recovery. Do you, I know that you do a lot of work in the jail mm-hmm. system. Our county jail. Mm-hmm. And do you do much work with recovery um, I don't, but most, I've I've been there three years. I've maybe met five women in there that aren't addicts. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't 
per se, I don't know a lot about uh, the 12 steps other than the teaching that we do every six weeks that someone does. And so I've learned a lot, uh, but I have never been through it or I'm not highly educated in it. There are so many themes and great points from your book. So one being, I thought early, early on when you got to share with your friend, all like you just got to kind of get it all out and it was kind of for, for uh, recovery that's a that's one of the steps yeah is man find someone that you trust uh-huh. and unload isn't and, step four where you write everything yes. out okay and yeah five is hearing it. yeah uh-huh. and it's uh awful see and that's where anger comes into play awful for some and then for others oh my gosh but i love that and one of my questions though for the two of you is is that would that be a good almost spiritual practice four or six to routinely do that not unload their uh, past sins or shames but their fears you kind of talk about being if a six could have someone that they trust who's not gonna you ridicule or belittle or be patronizing but be able to unload fears of the past week or the fears of the upcoming month I think it's very helpful to say them to somebody who does who isn't dismissive. Mm-hmm. Is that true for you? Yes, yes, for sure. And I have I have dif- different fears that I have different people I can talk to them about. Like my fears about my black sons. Mm-hmm. I have other moms that are also parenting black kids. They don't ever belittle those feelings and they understand them. Right. So yes. Yeah. One of the things in terms of recovery, I just want to clean up what I said in terms of it's awful. I did a year of 12-step, intense 12-step work. I still do it because I'm codependent. And as a codependent, too, steps four and five for people who are in recovery are very hard because you have to face the fact that your love almost destroyed somebody else. Mm. And that's a, it's horrible. Yeah. And this might go back to what I was talking about earlier with being so detached from shame that I'm not bringing any shame into that, into that sharing. Yep. And so then that can be misinterpreted people yeah. as being kind of careless. On page 95, I'm going to, is it okay? Do I have permission to like read a oh, small paragraph? please. I don't know what the rules are on that with publishers. Uh, the second paragraph says, If you aren't a follower of Jesus, know that he isn't asking you to get your life together before you follow him. He wants us to follow him, worship him, and give him our all. And when we do that, our life does start to get together. Our picture of this is pretty much all wrong, that we need to be perfected before we come to God. That is how I dug my hole deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper when I was drinking. It was all backwards. And that's a comment I've heard from other people that that's the issue. It's like, okay, I'm going to keep lying. I'm going to keep doing this for this noble cause. And then I can come clean. I want to get this right. And then I'll be good. And then I'll, when I fix this, then I'll start repaying because I'll be in a spot where I can handle it. I always had that isolated as a, a recovery issue and not a faith issue. Mm-hmm. And so I loved hearing about that. Yeah. I feel like the misconception is just what I said is so many people feel as though if I could just get everything to look great in my family, everything to look great in my life, if I could quit doing all these quote unquote bad habits that are sabotaging me, then I can go to church or then I can develop a relationship with the Lord. And I mean, if you just read scripture, it's totally anti what Jesus ever said. I mean, he shows up and has dinner with 
everyone who was, and they were not his disciples. They were not followers of his. And so the whole message of Christianity is come, come as you are, like come to us, us as in God, Jesus, come to us. Um, and I think another thing that I, I really am passionate about recently is a lot of women feeling as though I can just do so much good, get myself together and I'll just be better on my own. And I just feel like that's just this hamster wheel that I could never accomplish anything that I actually need God to help me. And the lie is that I can do this without him. Uh, so there's that, this misconception of, I don't need him that much. And my thing was, gosh, I need, even now, because people would look at my life maybe and say, she must have it all together. And I'm like, no, I, I, I'm a, I'm a better mess than I was. I'm still a mess. Like I still need Jesus. I still need help. I still need counseling. I still need to come. I still need it all. But I do like that where it says, you know, our life starts to get together through him. Not perfect. That could be the title of your second book. I'm a better mess than I was. I'm a better mess than I was. <laughs> Just not as messy. Yeah. I have new messes and old messes. And yeah. yeah. Those are, again, those are, you're writing all the titles. Down. Thank you. You've got Thank you. A whole line of stuff. So I want you to talk about the letters. I, um, so I cried through that part, and I'm about to cry now, so you just take it. Mm. And, and again, I'm going to say I spent, this still comes up sometimes, because I'm, and we're not fully done with these stuff. We just know how to fight it better. I spent many years believing that I was what lies have said I was, the lies that I had in my head, the lies that I had in my heart. Um, when I became a follower of Jesus, I had spent many years uh, drinking heavily underage, partying, sexually active, got pregnant twice in college. I mean, just everything that I had grown up, like I grew up and the church was like, here's the two worst things you can do. <laughs> don't drink. I grew up Southern Baptist. Yeah. Don't drink and don't have sex. Right. And I was like, well, I missed the boat on that at like yeah. age 16. Yeah. So so then once I did start following Jesus, I didn't know what to do with that. Yeah. And so I... I, I felt as though I would walk into a room at church, and I felt it the most at church. I would walk into a room, and I felt as though they all knew. Like I had these letters. Fraud, fake, whore, name, name it. They're there. And so I thought that, vis that I walked in and everyone knew. And I started realizing a couple years later that it was like the sick game I played with myself. Nobody, they weren't real, obviously. Nobody was looking at me as much as I thought they were. And no one knew these things because I'd never said them out loud. Mm -hmm. my, I had kept my story and my past so close, but yet I felt as though I was exposed to the world. And so there was this fear of them knowing, fear that they already know. What do they think about me? And so that was just, to me, a really good illustration of what we do. Mm-hmm that we do this and we believe them. They become our reality. Um, and I reference the Scarlet Letter because that's what I think about of, of what that story. Um, I believe it's Nathaniel Hawthorne. If not, yeah, you can fix it. it. Yeah. Of the story of Hester Brand with having to wear that. Yeah. And they did that to her and I did it to myself. And I, I, I put a big U in the middle, like a big Superman S. I put a big U, which was unwanted. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't feel quite right. So I put all the reasons around why mm. nobody want me. I put a letter for every reason yeah. why. I think there are going to be a lot of readers 
who have done that to themselves in one way or another. And I think it was brilliant that you shared that part of your story. You know, I also think that we become comfortable with it. Yeah. Like, I think there's also this sense of, wait, this is, what do you mean this is wrong? I really, this is the life I live now. Yeah. I'm always unwanted. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes true. Yes, it does. You believe what you're telling yourself. Yep. Yeah. And so for me, I had to even come to these feelings of, okay, I did do these things. It is true that you were adopted. This yeah. is a true thing. It happened. These things actually happened. I actually made these choices, but they can't define me. They don't define me. No. They're not supposed to. God, does, God says they don't, and so I have to now choose to believe that they don't. Yeah. And I think that that's a practice that I, I still find myself labeling myself. It looks different. It's not as, like, whore. I may not say that, mm-hmm. but there are other words I could find myself believing do do you two think when you're meeting somebody for the first time and you're getting to know somebody do you ever think um you know i i think you're pretty great and i'd like to get to know you but if if you knew is that why you named the book if you only knew do you still think that probably sometimes i don't think that i think it about my past i really do think i've come like i i have so much healing has happened I think about my work sometimes Uh. and I don't know why I feel that way, Mm -hmm. but, or if I'm in a certain circle of people who I feel that are colleagues and I feel like, I don't know how I got invited to this. Mm -hmm. I might feel like if you knew that I don't really have the credentials that you have, Uh I think that you would also think, why did you get invited to this? I think that's you as a six going to three in stress. Mm -hmm. I'm not as relational. Mm -hmm. So as the two of you, and so n- not as much, and I'm an introvert and don't really want to meet new people, mm-hmm. but it was a sharing all my stuff with Whitney. That was, that was an ordeal. And I went the route of unpackaging a little bit at a time. So first we met on Tinder, we Tinder, mm-hmm. we, we both put pictures of us with our kids yeah. and uh-huh. uh, you know, we met up at Matito's plug for Matito's uh-huh. good stuff. And, uh, and so I've got a, one, you know, we're at Matito's. I didn't order alcohol. And so I kind of explained that. Um, okay, I'm an alcoholic. So we got that out of the way. And I've got a, a sizable scar down my arm that is very visible. And uh, and my big thing is let's not waste time. So I got, I got that out also of, you know, I'm a suicide survivor and an alcoholic. But then I remember the, the big one for me was when we were driving back, we went for uh, like a whole day. I don't think it was a weekend, but just a whole day. We'd only been dating for a couple weeks, but we both knew that. And then that day, spending it with her and her friends, and the feeling that we had driving home, we both were like, oh, man, this is this is it. And I still had a couple more skeletons, skeletons. in the closet. And But then it was, is she ever going to believe that there's no more skeletons? Mm-hmm. So then that's what I, I was like. So now there's also this. I love you to death. I didn't say I love you yet. Mm. And that's a, that is a funny story. I said it on accident one day, uh, <laughs> leaving a message. And she called love me you. back. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always end my phone messages with, all right, love you, bye, for all my family uh-huh. members. And so I just did that for her. And she called me. She's like, what? <laughs> but, <laughs> I love that. So, Accidental I love yeah. you. So that broke the ice really easy. Uh, but then I, I had some fear around that of... It's not who I am anymore. 
But I, my fear is it's always there lurking. Yeah. Well, like I it mean, it can always go south. Who I don't know what would set that off. But. Well, I mean, chapter nine for me is yeah. the one I lost sleep over. Am I going to really put this in a book? Because this stuff is 20 years ago we're talking yeah. about. I've got so much healing. Chapter nine, I bring up pornography. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Is this, is this, is this going to be a struggle for me? Why did I still struggle with this? This is five years ago this happened. That was a hard story for me to put out there. That is, that talking about that can bring up lots of fear of what we, what do people think about me when they read? In fact, it's the number one question I get when I do interviews is, how does your husband handle you writing about this? Or how did you feel as a, a leader in your church? And on one hand, I'm like, that was Listen, my next two questions. I mean, my yeah, no, but I'm always like, Aaron didn't find anything out when the book came out. Right, we knew. we do that. We talk about this all the time, but there is that. It's another level of fear. Of I'm not telling you something from 20 years ago. I'm telling you something. This happened five years ago when I was a leader in my church. I was about to teach the next morning, and here comes this thing up from the past. You know, the thing that I I want to be sure that I get to say. I think we all three are far more aware that we're loved by God because we've told our stories. And I don't know any way for any human being to lay down at night and go to sleep believing that they are God's beloved son or God's beloved daughter if they haven't told somebody the stories and the secrets and somebody has loved them in return. And scares me when I hear stories of somebody telling their story and their secret and the church, whatever that means in this context, not loving them in return. That leads into uh, just two final things that I just loved. And, uh, and that was vulner- vulnerability. Bri- oh my gosh. You got it. Yeah, he can't even say it. It's because he's a seven. Vulnerability. <laughs> That's true. And, and first of all, I thought that was a very, not to get back to the Enneagram, a very sick theme of, because you said it has a way of bringing people together, that direct quote from there. And that's such a way, because my deal when I think about vulnerability isn't about everyone. I'm focused on me mm. and my vulnerability. Uh, and that's because I'm a seven. It's because I'm mm-hmm. independent, aggressive stance. And so I just loved that. And I also loved uh, the chapter eight, the mm-hmm. sin shock. Mm-hmm. And I, and I love that so much because for what it is, but also recovery again, because that is what you have. We, uh, in a good recovery s- space, probably the spaces that you have, you've created there at the jail and, you know, not every recovery room is the same mm-hmm. and not everyone is like this, but when you're in a spot where you can, no matter what you say and you look around and everyone's like, yeah, yeah. And there's no judgment because mm-hmm. everyone everyone has their own letters that yeah. they've dealt with, mm-hmm. and they're and it's just such it's the coolest feeling ever. Yeah, issues. I think I think a lot of times people are afraid to share because they have shared before, whether it's sin or a struggle, and it's been they've been looked at like, did you really just say that out loud? Yeah, and I just don't. I think that we it's not good to live that way. I mean, that's putting up this fake idea of who I am. And I 
don't like, I did that for so long. It's suffocating. You cannot thrive in that kind of environment. And so for me being vulnerable with my friends, what I found and what I'm seeing now through the book is people say, because you went first, I, I, I'm now able to tell my story. And that's what we see is just, I'm just lending you my courage, lending you this bravery, which was still hard for me because someone had done it for me and just saying our story, our stories matter. As a Christian, I believe that seeing God's grace in our life, we see it the most when we're vulnerable about our mess. And so that makes me go, well, here it is. Look at all of it. Mm-hmm. Because I have all this and God still loves me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's so, so contagious. It's a chain reaction. Because yes. once, once you do it, then someone does it to you, and then that opens them up for someone to share it with mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Like you can't do it and then disappear. Right. Right. Because now you're part of yeah. you're part of that movement. You're yeah. part of the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that it's it's the thing is being vulnerable, okay, that's cool. But if I'm vulnerable with you guys and then you look at me and go, you could say a couple things and they could come from an innocent spot. Wow, I would have never thought that about you. Or like when you just said, I'm a suicide survivor, my first thought was like, Man, I'm so sorry. Some people would be like, La, what what do you mean? Like, I can't believe you would do that. That is shaming. Yeah. It is shaming and it is wrong because who am I to say that I would never be in that, make that same choice? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I always talk about like when I got pregnant in college, I didn't have an abortion and I never thought about it. It doesn't mean I couldn't do it. I'm, mm. you know what I mean? Just, just like, didn't. I just didn't. Yeah. And so the shock that we, sometimes we don't even know we do it it immediately puts someone in a state of defense, a state of shame, and they do not feel confident to be vulnerable anymore. And that's because we're lying to ourselves and not believing that we are that capable, we're capable of it, of doing anything that anybody tells us is part of their story. I think something that changed for me is when I became really honest with just my sin, that I'm capable of doing awful things. Yeah. And by the grace of God, some things I might not ever walk through but it doesn't mean I'm not capable of it. Right. And when we tell ourselves, you're right, when we lie to ourselves and say, I would never do that because I'm better than you, that is a lie. Yep. And it is pride. It does not help anybody. And it's foolish. I'm going to get on a, so I'm about to, well, like, I'm about to break out in a <laughs> yeah. sweat, it's Suzanne. Judgmental. <laughs> yes. It's judgmental. Yes. Yes. All right, I have one more question for you. Well, I actually have two. Can we do this again sometime? Oh, my gosh, I love this so much. Okay, great. Here's Here's a... Uh, we can do it at your house or mine. Come it on. Doesn't matter. Aaron will cook dinner for us all. All right. And so, Joe has to come. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the question I, I finished the last page with. Do you think that it takes more courage to tell your story, this very honest, very vulnerable story that's in your book? Or do you think it took more courage to believe that God really loves you the same way God loves everybody else, regardless of what's in the story. The, what you just said. It took more courage for me to believe that. I think if we lived in a world where people, in whatever faith belief they're in, could believe that they are beloved and totally lovable no matter what they've done, it, I think it not only would make it easier for us to tell our stories, but I think it changes our stories. Yep. Once you believe that, 
it changes you. It changes your story. It's a new lens that you are able to look from. Yeah. That you, I mean, I see that at county jail. The, there is no lack of vulnerability in there. No. You're, you're found out. Yeah. Whatever you allegedly did, we all know. Yeah. But when they hear me or anyone, any of our volunteers that are there, tell them you are so deeply loved. Yeah. No matter what you've done. Sometimes it just, you see it, they like nod, okay, whatever. When they get it, mm-hmm. and they're no different than us, they're just behind bars. Well, they just, it's just, it's just outwardly, people can see it. Yep. We have the same stuff inwardly. And so whenever they get, no matter what you did, no matter who you've hurt, no matter who you've harmed, no matter what relationships you have ruined by your choices, God loves you. When that light bulb comes on, it changes. Their circumstances may not change. It doesn't get you out of jail. Right. But, but the way you see yourself changes. Yeah. There's an old Enneagram teaching that's about personality and essence. And, you know, your essence is who you were before you did anything wrong or anything right. It's who we're created to be. And personality is all this other stuff we do that we now have numbers for in our world. And one of the most important things I've ever heard from the theologians that I trust is that your essence can't be harmed. No matter what you've done and no matter what has happened to you, your essence isn't harmed. Mm. And boy, I can hold on to that when I think I'm all this unlovable stuff. I, I mean, I, and to, to just follow up with that, it's this, I've heard what does it for me too is to know that if, if we believe God knows all, Anything I've done is not a surprise, and he still loves me. Yeah. I can't encourage everybody enough to read If You Only Knew by Jamie Ivey. And if you're not listening to her podcast, The Happy Hour, you need to do that too. Joel, you got any closing thoughts? No, thank you so much. Uh, the book, all you men can read the book also. <laughs> thank you for that. So great. Um, I have closing thoughts. Okay. I am so extremely honored to be here with you guys. I highly respect you. These conversations, the one you've done on my show and then the one today, they just feel so normal and natural. So thank you for inviting me. So glad to have you. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit the Enneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.